you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. So what precisely are we covering? All right, yes. I have a little intro written up. Ooh. You've got that, like, smile of glee that I always get excited about. (laughs) Good. I'm glad that comes across. We're going to talk about something really interesting. I'm not sure it's interesting so much as, let's go with unique. It is a unique thing. A unique text. We like the unique texts. All right. Well, so, as you know, I intended to to do, like, a larger multi-part series now that you've finished the Toyn Bakuling. Yes. And in trying to decide what text to read, I narrowed it down to two. And one of them is French, so I'm going to ask you to say the title first before I say the anglicized version. Fair enough. Is it in... Oh, it's in Skype. Okay. That's... Is that French, really? Okay. It's old French. Per... Uh... Persfau? Persfau? I don't know, actually. I don't have a great French pronunciation, but I can pretend. Honestly, that was probably pretty close because th- this is the guy who's called Percival in English. That makes sense. I was wondering if that's where we were going with this. Yeah, but uh, I'm going to call this text Perlesvals because that's what it looks like. Also known as the High Book of the Grail. Mm-hmm. And the other one I was trying to decide between is the Anecdota, also known as the Secret History. Ooh. Now, these two texts are so wildly different that I couldn't decide between them, so I decided to poll our listeners. Yes, that's right, I saw that. Yes, and I put a poll on Facebook and a poll on Twitter with the intention to combine the results of the two and see what we got. Uh, We didn't get a lot of responses. I think the total between the two was in the very low double digits, but we did get a weird pattern. Okay. Everyone on Twitter wants to hear Anecdota. Everyone on Facebook wants to hear Perlis Mouse. Interesting. Is there a ratio of numbers here? Like, what's the what's the ratio? The same number of people voted in <gasps> each poll, and both polls were unanimous. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, I know. I, like, it would be, if you only had one or two people in each poll, I'd be like, fine, you know, that just happens. But we right. had just enough people voting that it was weird that, that, that it shook out that way. Interesting. So that means we definitively have to do both now. Yes, yes. I still have to decide which one to do first, and all this True. is to say, Twitter, it's not that I love Facebook more. It's that, faced with making the call myself, I decided we weren't going to do two Byzantine texts in a row, so we're doing the French one. Fair enough. Fair enough. And it's Arthurian. So I guess we're going back and forth between, like, Arthurian texts and the Byzantine texts. We're just, we're jumping through history here. Yeah, a bit, yeah. So if anyone's getting whiplash, we apologize. It's... You know, we're, we're keeping it fresh. Yeah, and uh, this is a long text, so I'm going to assume that Zoe will give us some variety while we do a bunch of French Arthur stuff. Oh yes, we've got lots of exciting things coming up, like our Halloween episode, which I don't know how this is going to work out in it the timeline. Come out before so... Halloween, I think. We'll see. Because Halloween's still a month away. and True, true. I don't know. It, it'll either be right before or right after the Halloween episode. We'll find out. We'll find out. Anyway, let's talk about this book we're reading. Mm-hmm. So it's an Arthurian romance written in Old French. And 
anyone who is familiar with the romance genre means that we're already getting something weird because not only are romances weird, but I'm pretty sure that everyone in medieval France had ergot poisoning because everything that comes out of there is also extra weird. That makes sense. France is just, medieval France specifically is just weird. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I have no idea what modern France is like, actually. Maybe they're still weird. Who knows? Medieval French romances are about the weirdest things I've ever read. Fair enough. Anyway, it's generally dated to sometime in the early 13th century. It appears to be an attempt to finish, hold on, I'm going to do the name properly, Chrétien de Troise, or as we also call him, Chris of Troy, uh, his yes. unfinished work, Percival, or The Knight of the Grail. This was not an uncommon endeavor at the time. Chrétien's invention of the Holy Grail fired the imaginations of many contemporary authors. Notable among Chrétien's continuators are Wolfram von Eschenbach. Ooh, that is a great name. I know, it's a, it's a heck of a name. But he wrote an epic called Parzival, which is regarded as one of the great masterpieces of medieval Germany. And someone who might be French, but his name looks very English, so I'm just going to anglicize it, is uh, Robert de Boron. <laughs> oh, gosh. There was a lot of cross-cultural stuff there, so, you know. Yeah, it might be Robert de Bohon or something mm, like that. Mm -hmm, but of Robert, course. Robert de Boron, whose interpretation of the Grail is the Jesus Cup we're all familiar with today. Because in Chrétien, it's a dish. In Wolfram, it's a gemstone. Robert slash Robert made it a cup that had, like, a connection to Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea and all that stuff. And that kind of stuck. That's the version we're all familiar with from, say, Monty Python. Yes. The Holy Grail. So was it always referred to as the Grail? Or yes. was it just, like, the Holy Jesus Relic? It wasn't even always definitely connected to Jesus. Oh, fast. So it was just some sort of quest item that we needed. I think even in Chrétien, there was like a holy vibe. But the idea that it was like, this is the cup that like collected Jesus's blood during the crucifixion, like that backstory was an invention of a later author. Okay, good to know. See, that's always fascinating to me to see when those kind of come across because there were so many different crusades and we get, you know, like, where did these relics even come from? How did they get to Europe? Blah, 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 blah. You know, that's always been fascinating to me. So remind me when this was written so that we can sort of chronologize it. Uh, Chrétien is late 12th century. This is early 13th. It took off gotcha. quickly. Yeah, no kidding. The thing is, a grail doesn't actually mean cup. That, that just happened later. It, Fair, it, it yeah. was originally a dish. It's from uh, the old French word, I can't pronounce it. It's spelled like grail, except instead of an A-I, it's two A's. But it means a cup or bowl or dish. It's just... A receptacle. Yeah. According to my quick Google here, it ultimately comes from Greek crater, which is that like shallow wine vessel that you see people uh, holding on, on urns and stuff. Yes. Pasmak has gotten his ancient Greek vessels confused. A crater is actually a large vase-shaped jug used for mixing of wine. Pasmak is thinking of a kylix, which is a shallow bowl used for drinking wine, which fellow huge nerds may recognize from the Magic the Gathering card, Golgothian Silex. They spelled it slightly differently, but the picture is very clearly a kylix. So there you go. The idea of it being a goblet was definitely a non-Christian, but <laughs> the author of Perlis Vows obviously has read Robert de Boron because... Like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, he <laughs> uses the version of the story that includes Joseph of Arimathea, which is a Robert de Boron invention. Makes sense. Now, not particularly notable among the continuators of Chrétien's Percival 
is the author of Perla's Spouse, whose work is, we're going to say, not one of the great masterpieces of the medieval era. Fair enough. How, how do we classify one of these masterpieces, Mac? I think, for starters, it has to be good, and it has to make a little bit of sense. Mm-hmm. So this is why T. Adele didn't make the cut? Well, yeah, Marie de France's version was better anyway. I'd say that <laughs> this clever gets lots of attention, and it deserves it. That's true. That's true. Similarly, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Lots of attention. It deserves it. I'd say it's a great masterpiece of the medieval era. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Y'all will find out about why this one is not up there with the others as we go. But uh, just as a teaser, I got a hold of a copy of a book called The Grail, From Celtic Myth to Christian Symbol by Roger Sherman Loomis. Oh. Incidentally, a note. When I went to try and get a copy of that, I found that the university's copy of that book was already checked out, and we were too close to recording to try interlibrary loan. Ah, oh, rats. And I wasn't going to try an emergency recall, because there's always a chance it's being used for someone's dissertation. And this this obviously takes second fiddle to a dissertation. That's, that's a serious piece of work. There's also the concern, and I would assume would be the more likely outcome if we were anywhere except on campus with a well-known Arthurian professor. Uh, well. Anything about the grail might be being checked out by some kind of dangerous and unpredictable conspiracy theorist. So that's also a reason not to do a recall. True. You want to leave them alone. Just let them do their thing. But luckily, the fine folks at archive.org have a digital copy that they lend out for two hours at a time, like a digital library. That's and so cool. I was able to read the chapter. So I just wanted to shout them out for being just generally an all-around great service. Absolutely. Don't pay for books you don't need. You know, there are resources for that. Archive.org is a great one, among others. Yes. Archive.org is fantastic. I love it. Always check archive.org before you buy a book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially if you only need it for like quick reference. If you're going to like sit down, and, like read it, enjoy it, and note it up, then maybe buy mm -hmm. it. But oh, for sure. If you're going to invest in it, you know. Yeah. But anyway, in that book, Loomis dedicates a chapter to Perlisbaus, and in this chapter, he suggests at least five separate times that there is something deeply wrong with this author. I will quote these lines here for the benefit of the audience. Number one, it is by no means free of flaws and aberrations. Indeed, the author seems at times deranged. Oh, Number that's two, quite the indictment. If the author were living today, one might suspect that he was a victim of paranoia, for he displays several of the typical symptoms. Number three, the author thought to find an occult meaning in names and to attach a typological or allegorical meaning to some of his episodes, even altering the narrative pattern in order to fit the alleged significance. But far from being a Dante... He betrays in these efforts a defective, if not a diseased, mind. So this is a fan fiction? Is this where we're going with this? All of these things are fan fictions. I mean, yes. But this is an explicit call-out that this is a poorly written fan fiction. Right. Like, if Wolfram von Eschenbach's continuation of Percival is the equivalent of, like, Neil Gaiman writing Sherlock Holmes... Because, mm -hmm. like, that's technically fan fiction, but it's also very good. Yes. And this is closer to the equivalent of My Immortal. Oof. Which, if you don't know what that is, there's a couple dramatic readings on YouTube. You know, it's kind of, it's infamous, I will say. there's There should probably be a content warning on it. I don't know. Regardless, it's pretty infamous in the um, fanfic world, and it's sort of become its own sort of little creepypasta. So, just throwing that one out there. That's probably overstating the case, but it is definitely on the tier of, like, this is fan fiction that is capital letters, not literature. 
Fair enough. Alrighty. But I have two more quotes from uh, Loomis. How strangely erratic were the workings of the mind which produced the composite figure of the damsel of the cart. And number five. Is this macabre obsession with decapitated heads another symptom of an abnormal mentality? Okay, but there's a lot of decapitated heads in medieval literature. I know. Imagine how many there have to be in this text to make it stand out. Oh, no. A side note, I became aware of this text because at Kalamazoo a few years ago, another Purdue grad student, uh, Adrian McClure, mentioned to me that it was a particularly bizarre book worth reading if you enjoy that sort of thing. And they sell books at Kalamazoo at very good prices, so I actually was able to buy a copy while I was there. Oh, huzzah. I recently found out that Adrian wrote their dissertation on this last year and argued that the author may have been dealing with the trauma of the then-ongoing Albigensian crusade. Oh my gosh, that's brutal. I can't tell you any more about that argument, though, because the digital archive where they keep the dissertations has it marked as under embargo while Adrian works on turning it into a book. In case anyone wondered why I was using their full name, that's why. I'm not just doxing my classmate here. I want you to be able to find their book when it comes out. Fair enough. Once it becomes a book, I'm probably going to buy it because I want to read about that. Absolutely, yes. And I've also got to mention that, unlike my usual practice, I will not be reading the text in full. First, it's long. Second, the public domain translation, which is the one I bought at the Kalamazoo book sale, is incomprehensible. Oh, no. It's a late 19th century rendition by a man named Sebastian Evans, who seemed to think he was Thomas f***ing Mallory and just went hard on the unnecessary archaization. Like, not only is it all pronouns like thou and verbs like doth, but he uses non-standard spellings like laundes, L-A-U-N-D-E-S, for lands, and sovereign, S-O-V-R-A-N, for sovereign. Tolkien can almost get away with that, but like, come on, my dude. Just don't translate into Middle English. Just <laughs> why? Why would you do that? And the syntax is, is such a disaster that I'm not sure if he just is a bad writer or if he's trying to preserve the syntax from the French. And Oof. Just, it's a disaster. But there's a better translation from the 1970s by a guy named Nigel Bryant, but it's definitely not public domain and I'm not going to risk it. So instead, I'm summarizing, and because the text is absurd, I've been absolutely incapable of taking it seriously enough to write a straight-laced summary, and this text really resists compression because weird shit happens on every page, and I don't want to leave it out. So, in conclusion, buckle up. All right. Strap in. Let's go. One of the ways in which I was able to summarize this was it's very dialogue-heavy, so I just scripted out some of the longer and or more significant dialogue bits. Makes sense. And I'm going to need you to help me out by doing some voices. Oh, oh, okay. Here we go. It's broken into 35 short chapters. Whew. Alrighty. So I'm, I'm going to try and make sure that we do at least three of those every time we try and record from it. And we stop after, say, every ninth chapter and do our segments. All right. Okay. Yeah, we are in for a ride. All right. So I am now beginning my summary to have here in my little notebook. First up. Let's talk about Joseph of Arimathea, who yes. most listeners will know primarily from his mention in Monty Python's Holy Grail. Joseph was supposedly, because I'm not sure if there's any historical evidence for this guy, but in, in the literature, he was a soldier in the employ of Pontius Pilate, who was the one who laid the body of Jesus in the tomb. He also squirreled away the lance which pierced Jesus' side and the vessel in which the blood from his wounds was gathered, i.e. the Holy Grail in Robert de Boron's interpretation. Yes. Joseph of Arimathea is the uncle of someone named Iglesias, who is the mother 
of Percival. Because time is a four-corner square. Sure. It makes total sense for an Arthurian figure to be the grandnephew of a biblical figure. Why not? In the opening, we get some more of Percival's family tree, which I'm mostly skimming over because he has 11 uncles. But some of those uncles have excellent names, so I want to share them. Ooh, okay, okay. We love a good name list. Fortimus of the Crimson Heath. Galerian of the White Tower. Aliban of the Waste City. These are really good. For the listeners, Zoe is making a series of faces. It's, I mean, it sounds like it comes straight from, like, Wheel of Time or Lord of the Rings or, you know, something like that. I'm digging it. These are great titles. Percival's father is, I'm going to try and do the French properly, Alain Lejos, which is, as far as I can tell, just French for Big Alan, so I'm going to call him Big Alan. Nice. Big Alan of the Vales of Camelot. In this text, Camelot is spelled K-A-M-A-A-L-O-T. Sure, that sounds like an off-brand cereal. It does a bit, doesn't it? Big Alan and all 11 of his brothers were knights who died in battle. Anyway, this is an Arthurian story, so after we've gotten that background on our character, we're going to check in on King Arthur. He's gotten lazy in recent years and stopped having adventures in his court. The knights of the Round Table have started going off on their own as a result, and now there are only 25 knights in Arthur's court, where there used to be 370. Guinevere is not thrilled. One Ascension Day, they are at Carduel, which is another one of Arthur's courts, and Arthur and Guinevere have the following conversation while chilling in a window seat. Guinevere, why are you crying? Because you suck so bad lately and it shames me. Fair enough, you're not wrong. You should go to the chapel of St. Augustine in the White Forest. The hermit there will fix you right up. No, I have been thinking of doing exactly that. Go and take a squire. I don't want to take a squire. Take a squire. Fine, but I've got a bad feeling about this. As soon as they finish talking, they get up from the window seat and see a squire nearby. His name is Chaz, I'm going to call him. It's spelled C-A-H-U-S, and I don't know how to say that. (laughs) And it is noted that he is particularly hot. (laughs) Arthur immediately says, how about that one? Oh, oh well, okay then. So Guinevere agrees, and Arthur instructs Chaz to sleep in the hall tonight and make sure everything is ready for the trip tomorrow morning. That night, Chaz has the following dream. Arthur leaves without him, and in a panic, he saddles his horse and rides to catch up. He follows the trail of hoofprints to a clearing in which a chapel stands, encircled by a great cemetery. Thinking Arthur is probably in the chapel, he goes to check it out. However, the only person in the chapel is a dead knight, laying on a litter draped with silk, with four lit candles and gold candlesticks surrounding him. Chaz is confused, so he decides to keep looking for Arthur elsewhere, but first! He removes one of the candles from the candlestick, and stuffs the candlestick down his pants. I'm not kidding, that is what it says. Classic. He rides off, but soon encounters a giant of a man wielding a huge knife, and the following conversation takes place. Have you seen King Arthur around? No. Now give me that candlestick you stole so I can put it back in the chapel where it belongs. No. I'm going to give it to King Arthur. What? Give it back or else. Chaz tries to ride away, but Knife Guy catches up and stabs him. (laughs) Chaz wakes up screaming. Arthur, Guinevere, and the Chamberlain rush to see what's going on. Chaz tells them his dream. 
Arthur reassures him that it was but a dream. And then Chaz says, Or was it? And he raises his right arm and shows them the knife sticking out of his <laughs> This is wild. And he then pulls a golden candlestick out of his pants. So what is the purpose of it being a dream? Why isn't it this guy who just got, like, too drunk? Like, he got blackout drunk. Why is it a dream? If he has the candlestick and was stabbed. I don't know. I don't know. But that's what it says. The ghost stabbed him? No, the knife guy stabbed him. Yeah. The ghost was already in there. Oh my gosh. Yep. That was not a dream, my dude. You were just blackout drunk. Anyway, he's given last rites, then he dies, and the candlestick is donated to St. Paul's Church in London. After all this mess is wrapped up, Arthur gets ready to go to the chapel of St. Augustine. The following conversation occurs. Surely you're not going all alone? Yes, I am, and don't call me Shirley. Didn't you see what happened to the last squire I tried to bring? Good call. Good luck, and I hope the hermit helps you suck less. We can only hope. Arthur rides off. Doesn't he look so nice on his horse? Oh yes, it's a shame he's gotten so lazy, say the chorus of knights, apparently in unison. God bless. That really is quite Shakespearean. Does Dante have, like, choruses? It's like a Greek chorus, at the very least. Yeah, it, it seems to happen in, like, all of these medieval literature things, where it just says, like, the knights say this, and, like, all of them <laughs> at once? <laughs> Sure, why not? Greek chorus all around. But Arthur rides until he reaches a chapel with a hermitage beside it. He dismounts. One of the things that we're going to pick up on is every forest is just packed with chapels and hermitages. Okay, that is a theme that occurs in basically every Arthurian text. Where do you think that comes from? Because it seems very, very much just like a mode of convenience like, ah, yes, the players are in need of a place to sell things and buy some health potions. So there's a random shopkeep on this road. Why not? Yeah, I honestly do think it's like that. It's like, oh, you need to rest. Well, there happens to be an inn nearby. Except since this is all like medieval religious themed, it's there's a chapel or a hermitage instead. There's a place to stay. Yeah, I really do think it's just a narrative device. Yeah, at this point, yeah. But he dismounts and goes into the hermitage, quote, pulling his horse behind him, though it could hardly get through the door. So, why? Because it's so fat or because it's so, like, big? Like, it's just a real chonky boy? An absolute unit? Honestly, I think it's because the door is built for humans. There's usually a stable outside for this. That's also valid. I just, I guess when I ever, whenever I see, like, medieval churches, the doors are, are usually big enough for horses. Yeah, but this isn't a church. This is a hermitage beside a small chapel. All right, that's that's fair. Yeah, you don't really expect it's not to gonna be, bring your horse yeah. indoors. But he does. It doesn't say why. He just does. And the text even points out that it doesn't really work. Because he's King Arthur. Of course he's going to bring his horse inside. Right, exactly. Once in the hermitage, he hears an argument inside the chapel between voices that sound like angels and voices who sound like demons. So he goes next door, but the only person there is the hermit lying in a coffin and clutching a crucifix, clearly on his deathbed. He's already in the coffin? Yeah, you know, he's just he's a considerate guy. He wants it to be convenient for whoever. I still feel like there's some embalming processes that need to occur before that, but I admire his dedication. I mean, I'm not sure how much they actually did that. If I mean, there's final rites that you do after someone passes. He's a holy man himself. He probably did his own. I mean, if you got it, 
flaunt it. That's probably not the phrase one should use in that situation, but, you know. Whatever you're flaunting by hanging out in a coffin, I do want to know about it. <laughs> He's so good at what he does. He's like, I know I'm going to die, so I'm just going to finish this myself. Y'all can leave me here. We're good. Yeah, again, very thoughtful. I- indeed. But Arthur hangs out for a bit, just like staring at this guy. Not talking, just staring. The hermit might not even be conscious, just lying there, dying, and he's just watching him. And then suddenly Arthur notices that it's still light in the chapel, even though night has fallen and there are no candles lit. For whatever reason, he just observes this and then decides he still wants to stay and just watch this guy die. That seems weird, Arthur, but okay. Very, very Johnny Cash. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway... He can't because a terrible voice shouts at him, basically, "Fuck off, we were in the middle of something here. So Arthur fucks off. And he goes back to the hermitage where he listens at the door to demons and angels arguing over the hermit's soul. Because before he was a hermit, he spent 60-something years as a robber and a murderer. This is just this is just his retirement. But I thought that was the whole point, was like you gain salvation and then there's no more argument about who gets you. Like, you dedicate your life to Christ in a hermitage. It's like, nah, you're good, fam. Your sins have been paid for. That's the whole point. You'd think. But apparently there are still debates in this canon. I'm not up on my theology, but I seem to recall that, like, medieval Catholicism was definitely more on the faith than on the works. Well, it's... So if you were a bad person, but then, like, you can you did all your confessions and you dedicated yourself to God afterwards, you could still go to heaven, like, just cut. That's fair. I mean, that's so odd. But sure. All right. I like that they paused in their debate once King Arthur got in there because he was clearly an outsider who did not belong in this situation whatsoever. Yeah. It's like, uh, dude, what are you doing? I wonder how long he stood there. You think it was like a 10 minute impasse or was it more just like two or three minutes? I still want to know why Arthur just wanted to watch the guy die because like this whole series of events seems weird. This seems like it would be a really great animated series like Disenchanted. I would watch that. It would be hilarious. Anyway... Right, anyway, it seems like the demons are winning the argument, but then Mary herself intervenes and claims the soul. Good for you. Good for you, Mary. We are then told that according to Flavius Josephus, Flavius Josephus is a well-known classical historian for anyone who's not aware. I believe he did, he was, let me just double check this. I want to say he's the one that wrote the Jewish Wars. I also think he was the Jewish chronicler of Christ's life. Romano-Jewish historian, yes. Yeah, he, he was a first century Jewish historian. He's best known for, yeah, the Jewish War. Yep. Which was published in around 75. Okay. But yeah, that would be about the right time for him to be covering the events of the New Testament also. Mm-hmm. So possibly. I don't know about that side of his life. But anyway, uh, Flavius Josephus is also being given credit for the... You know how Thomas Mallory claims that uh, Le Morte d'Arthur is based on an older French book? Oh, yes, of course, because that's what credibility is. Yeah, the author of Pearl of Spouse does the same, but he says that this comes from a book written by Flavius Josephus. Yep. But anyways, like, according to Flavius Josephus, this holy man was named Calixtes, just so you know. FYI. Good to know. I do like that he gets a name. We always lose these names as, as we go through iterations of these tales, so that's cool. Yeah, a lot of these people continue to not get names, and even the ones who do get names, it's really more of a description. So I will occasionally ask you if you want to name someone who I couldn't come up with a good name for. Right on. But in the morning, Arthur leaves. He arrives at a glade and sees a damsel with a mule. She also doesn't get a name, but I kind of gave her one because I kept abbreviating damsel at glade with mule as D at sign G M. And 
then I just started calling her Dagmar, so she's dead. <laughs> I was wondering about that. Okay. Oh yeah, you you've already skipped ahead to the next slide. Yes, I'm, I'm yeah, on the next her. slide. A conversation follows. Arthur says, "So, so, so I noticed there's a a gate yonder. Is there some sort of building here? Chapel of Saint Augustine. Chapel of Saint Augustine. You say? I do say, and it's pretty great, but it's also super dangerous. If you want to go check that out, I'll wait for you to get back. Fair enough. I'll be back. Also, there's something specific I want to ask you about, but it can wait." The repetition of, like, this is the Chapel of St. Augustine. It's the Chapel of St. Augustine? Yes, it's the Chapel of St. Augustine. It's, like, a feature of this text. That makes Constant. sense. I usually edit it out, but I wanted to leave it in at least once. Fair enough. Historically, that's something that I think appears mostly in oral tradition, because if you repeat refrains, it's easier to memorize, and you always have something to go back to. But I don't know why you would end up doing it in something that is very clearly just written down. Yeah, I doubt that this was ever told out loud. Yeah. There is a colophon that basically says it was commissioned and given to someone. Okay. This is not an oral tradition. Anyway, Arthur comes to the chapel, but finds himself physically unable to walk through the door. Just like, because there's a ward or something there? Like like a vampire who hasn't been invited in. Nice. But he looks, he can see inside, and there's this whole religious thing where Jesus and Mary, the actual Jesus and Mary, are just sitting there like celebrating mass with the hermit inside. Okay, question. Why would they need to celebrate Mass if they're the ones being celebrated at Mass? Now, I've never been to a Mass. I think I've been to a Mass once, but I don't retain the memory because it was boring. A lot of them are. As far as I can tell, in the context of this fictional universe, Masses are fun as hell because everyone wants to do them. I want to go to one of these Masses, man. Like, throughout this whole thing, everyone's like, yeah, I want to go to Mass. Love Mass. (laughs) So I just assume they're they're fun, and so Jesus and Mary are just there because they enjoy the ambiance. You know, it's whatever's in the Jesus juice. Might be. Anyway, eventually, Jesus and Mary leave by just, like, demanifesting, and the hermit tells Arthur he can come in now. The hermit explains that Arthur is banned from coming to Mass at this hermitage <laughs> because he sucks so bad lately. Okay, can, hang on. Back up. Why does this hermit know that he sucks so badly? And also, like, why is Gwen accusing him of sucking so badly like what what is how is he deficient just because he's like a lazy king now and everyone knows it yeah he's just not going out and doing adventures anymore and apparently that has made everyone just go like oh (laughs) you know i feel like we should do that with politicians now I feel like we already do that with politics. Or do you mean make them go out on adventures? Well, I think making them go out on adventures would be great. But also just be like, you know, you're not allowed to come in here just because you've been failing in your role. Ooh, also good. I was thinking like maybe we could make Joe Manchin fight the Black Knight. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just like, nah, nah, go go back to Capitol Hill and please do your job. You're not allowed in this establishment. Honestly, that might help. (laughs) It would be something. But anyway, yeah, Arthur's banned from coming to Mass because, just because he sucks. And Arthur just kind of accepts this sort of statement by now, because it's what everyone keeps saying. Like, it's really been drilled in, so he's just like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, and the hermit just moves on to, like, talk about other problems. Specifically, recent events at the home of the Fisher King. The Fisher King. Like... The Fisher King. Like, Rod and Reel? Yeah. I didn't know there was a Fisher King in England. There's one in Chrétien. Ah, I see. He's the one who has the grail. Mm-hmm. I feel like it should be canon that the Fisher King and the Lady of the Lake, like, hook up. I kind of like that idea. You should write that fan fiction. 
I'm gonna do a fan fiction of a fan fiction of a ancient legend fan fiction question mark if you just fan fiction Kreti in then you're in the same company as like a lot of continental Arthurian writers in the high middle ages just like classic I like Kreti in he didn't finish it I'm gonna finish it there we go add another chapter but anyway at the Fisher King's place a knight was staying there and they did their whole procession of holy objects, which is what they do at the house of the Fisher King. Mm-hmm. They've got the grail, and they've got the spear of Longinus. And the knight was supposed to ask what the f*** exactly was going on. Because they didn't do this with an explanation. They just started bringing holy objects through. And, like, the, the lance drips blood from the tip, and, like, the grail emits light. And, like, it's very clearly all supernatural. And he was supposed to go, hey, what's up with this? But he didn't. Hmm. There's an explanation for this in Cretien. And the author here is assuming that everyone's read Cretien, because this comes after the events in Cretien. Percival had been told by his mother to not ask too many questions of strangers. Seems reasonable. So when he saw Stranger danger. Yeah, he saw a weird thing going on in someone else's house, and he's like, that's none of my business, and he didn't ask questions. So smart. But it turns out he was supposed to. That's not fair. When you live in medieval fantasy world where you're supposed to ask the quest giver questions, come on, man. How are you supposed to know whether you're in fantasy land or not? This really actually does go through this whole text as like a theme and that there are questions that are supposed to be asked. And then there are much more nonsensical things that I would want to ask questions about, but everyone just accepts as normal. Go figure, man. I don't know how they were supposed to discern between these. But anyway, for reasons unclear, not asking this question has caused everyone in the region to go into full on battle royale mode. And now every night one meets just straight up attacks on sight. Unclear how Arthur has not noticed this. You'd think it would not be subtle. Yeah, that would be the guess. Like, all right. Okay, cool. I also kind of wonder if this is just the author trying to explain like the basic, one of the like genre fixtures of the uh, Arthurian romance or the chivalric romance is just like whenever knights meet, they fight each other just because. And at least he's giving a reason. I mean, it makes sense. You know, like it's just a measuring contest at that point right Right. yeah no it is it is absolutely but here we have a reason but it does not a reason that makes sense excellent grammar there past mac that does not a sentence that makes sense so arthur turns and leaves he's gotten his exposition but before he's even a bow shot away from the hermitage a knight on a giant black horse carrying a black shield and a friggin' flaming lance charges at him a flaming lance? A flaming lance. That is so cool. Arthur dodges and conversation follows. Here we go. Jesus, dude, what the fuck? Gotta. Why? Someone stole my brother's candlestick and gave it to you. Oh, so you know me then. You are King Arthur, who was once a good king, but is now bad. And since the reader can't see the little brackets, that is a direct quote from the text. Poetry. Or at least from the Bryant translation. I think the Evans translation says "wince forth and evil" instead of "once and bad." But like, it's actually. Let me get it. Let me. <laughs> literature. We're reading literature today. You are the King Arthur that aforetime were good and now are evil. Aforetime. Aforetime. That is a that is a choice, my good sir. Anyway, now that he said this, an. Action scene! Please imagine sparkle emojis. Commences. And the Black Knight manages to cut Arthur's arm with his spear. The flames on the spear go out and the Black Knight immediately stops fighting. 
My spear could never be quenched until I drew your blood. Now that that's done, I want to surrender. No. And then Arthur kills him to death. That seems incredibly unchivalric. He is a bad king. I know, right? It's another thing they kind of go back and forth on throughout the text. It's like, whether it makes sense to accept a surrender when you're fighting someone for no reason. That's so bizarre. But yeah, Arthur kills him and he rides off and observes like 20 plus other knights kind of approaching the body as he goes. And soon he reaches Dagmar again. Yeah. So here is their conversation. Wait, wait. I need that guy's head. Arthur looks back and he can still see a swarm of knights. You're kidding, right? I am not. And no knight has ever refused me any request. But but my arm's all f***ed up. I know that, sire. But you will not be healed unless you bring me the head of that knight. Also a direct quote. To which Arthur responds, Yeah, that sounds real. No further questions. I mean, it was a flaming lance, so at this point, what you gonna do? It's like these really specific things. Like, no, you need the head of that specific knight brought to me or you will never be healed of that wound. And he's just like, yeah. Sounds legit. There's no why. So Arthur goes back and he sees that the knights have chopped up the dead one. And each of them are carrying a bit of him back into the forest like they're f***ing ants or something. Okay. The last in line has the head. So Arthur goes up to him and they have this conversation. Hey, you. Can I have that head? I don't know, man. You gotta you gotta do something for me first. How about you tell me who killed him, and I'll let you have the head. Deal. King Arthur killed him. Sweet. Where can I find King Arthur? That's not part of the deal. Give me the head. That's quite clever, actually. That's, you know. Yeah, so the person who I, as you can see from the script, I am calling him the Ant Knight, because these knights are acting like ants. He does so. He hands over the head, and Arthur books it. Of course. Very wise. As Arthur is escaping, the Ant Knight blows a horn and summons the rest back, and they have a little chat. What's up? That guy who was running away really fast just told me that it was King Arthur who killed the Black Knight. So now we gotta go hunt down King Arthur. Idiot! That was King Arthur! And now we can't get him! Because he's already past the gate, and I guess that's base or something? I don't know, the rules really aren't clearly defined. Capture the flag with heads. So, in anger, the other Ant Knights chop up the dumber Ant Knight and carry off his bits also. Aw, man. Poor guy. Arthur goes back to Dagmar and gives her the head. And they have this conversation. You can dismount. You're safe on this side of the gate because, I don't know, we're out of bounds or something. Nobody really talks about why the rules are the way they are here. Arthur dismounts. Also, I will now treat your wound, which only I can cure. Dagmar smears blood from the head onto Arthur's wound. Presumably this helps instead of giving him an horrible infection. See, the reason they were taken as bits was because your wound would only be healed with his blood. Also, I can use this head to get my castle back, if I can find one specific knight to help me with that. All of that makes total sense. The only question I still have is, what is the name of this specific knight? Ah, thereby hangs a tale. There's now a flashback. Oh my. Okay, I still have questions here. Like, I know King Arthur doesn't have questions, but I have questions. A- ask your questions. So, the Black Knight has, like, magical 
blood that heals wounds, but didn't it didn't regenerate his own wounds. And nope. the ant knights want want that? They want his blood because they they know about these healing properties? Is that the premise here? Maybe, but they also chopped up the other one of their own maybe that's just something they do. Or maybe he's part of their group and they're all like that. Oh, that's weird. Alright. Also, just in, in case anyone missed it, that knight did attack King Arthur for something that happened in someone else's dream. What the heck? Remember, it's the, it was about the candlestick. Yeah, that's that right. That was a dream. It was supposed to be a dream, which we all know wasn't a dream. All right, my dude, that's weird. <laughs> Do you have any other questions? You know, I feel like all other questions would be fruitless. Fair. So anyway, flashback. There was once a man called Big Alan of the Vales of Camelot. I love this guy already. <laughs> when his son was born, Alan was busy brooding about how a guy who is, depending on which text you read, called the Lord of the Fens or the Lord of the Moors. Moors like the landscape, not the people. Yes. Bryant calls him the Lord of the Fens, so I'm going to stick with that. And also, it isn't as semantically confusing. As long as you remember it's F-E-N Fen, not F-I-N. Yes. The Lord of the Fens had taken most of these aforementioned veils from him, so he named the kid Per Les Vaus, which is apparently Old French for he who has lost the veils. In English, we call him Percival, so I'm just going to stick with that. Fair enough. Percival spends his youth hunting in the forest, quote, throwing javelins at stags and hinds like a Welshman. Like a Welshman? Yes. I mean, that makes sense because the King Arthur lore does come from... You know, whales, but I feel like this is more of a... It's either, like, a really, really good thing, like, high praise, that he's a really good hunter, or it's a derogatory thing. I'm and I unclear. don't know what the context would be, because we are not a part of that time anymore. Yeah, the French romance authors definitely know that all the Arthurian stuff is theoretically set in, like, fairy tale whales. They just play really fast and loose with it, the same way that J.R.R. Tolkien stuff is set in fairy tale England. Mm-hmm. My best guess has been that, like... A javelin is a stereotypically Welsh weapon in some way. That would make sense. That fits. But anyway, that's what he's doing. Between Percival's family home and the forest was a tomb inside a small chapel. One day, Percival asks his father who, who was buried in the tomb. And Big Alan says that he doesn't know, because the tomb has been there for generations. And all anyone knows is what's written on the tomb. That when the finest knight in the world comes to the chapel, the tomb will open and he will see what lies within. Presumably a dead guy. Presumably. At this point, Arthur interrupts the flashback with a question. Here we go. So, like, have any knights gone and checked this out? <laughs> Tons. Tomb stayed shut. Quinn interrupting. Now, when little Percival heard this, the following conversation happened. Back to the flashback. And little Percival, who says, Mommy, Daddy, what's a knight? Percival's mother, whom Zoe is about to read for, is called Iglace, although you would be forgiven for forgetting that because it's mentioned in the first chapter, but she's just called his mother for the duration of this chapter. Go figure. Oh my, this is something you should know, considering who your family is. You have had 11 uncles on your father's side, each of whom, weirdly, have spent 12 years as a knight before dying in battle. It's like a family curse. Daddy, Mommy's not answering my question. Uh, knights are the worthiest men in the world. They have armor and helmets and shields and lances and swords. 
Percival is satisfied with this answer. You know, as a... Yes, at that age, I was also satisfied with that answer. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, knights have weapons. That is so cool. I don't need a history lesson about my family. And I just want to point out that the bit where Iglesias is like, oh, you know, your uncles were knights. And little Percival goes like, that's not what I asked. Is in the text. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. But anyway, the next day it's particularly nice out, and Percival decides to go hunting in the forest. By crazy coincidence, he happens upon two knights fighting in a clearing, one with a red shield and one with a white shield. He watches a bit, sees the red knight is winning, and makes the dumbass decision to intervene by throwing one of his javelins at the red knight. Bruh. The javelin pierces the knight's hauberk and kills him dead right there. Conversation with the white knight follows. Holy sh- kid that was incredible how'd you get so good at killing knights i uh i was really just fooling around i thought a knight's armor was invincible i never realized one could just like die (laughs) is that also in the text how does that what does that look like because that's given me like that's given me prequel vibes where anakin's like you can't kill a jedi yeah you know it's a lot like that ah here it is I thought that no one could pierce or damage a knight's armor, for otherwise I would not have thrown my javelin. There you go. He really does say, I thought the knight's armor was invincible. I guess his mother has told him a lot of stories. Apparently. Although this is the day after he learns what a knight is. Oh, that's true. He built it up in his mind. The flashback here ends. And uh, Dagmar kind of wraps up the story real quick. Uh, Percival's parents realized they were going to be problems when he told them that he killed someone in the woods. Uh, Percival, for seemingly unrelated reasons, headed out to be a knight, was knighted by Arthur, went out to seek adventures, and is now the finest knight in the world. It's weird that Arthur doesn't remember any of this since he knighted him. Yeah, you know, you're right. That's that's really weird. He He's a really bad king. <laughs> yeah, clearly, he's he's really just lost control. That was bad kuning. <laughs> Dagmar is now trying to find him. That's the specific knight she needs. And that's what she wanted to ask Arthur, to keep an eye out for this guy, because she wants to know where he is. Nice. And she specifies that the device on his shield is a white stag on a red field. All right. And if he happens to see Percival, Arthur needs to tell him the following things. One, Big Alan has been killed. Two, his mother Iglesias needs his help. Three, the brother of the red knight has allied with the lord of the fens, and they are waging war on his mother's household with the intent to take the family holdings. That is a dire situation Because again, he did just kill someone and bail, and there are consequences. Wait, how old is this kid anyway? Unclear. Alrighty then. He's super good at what he does, though. The, the bit of his childhood is all from Cretien, and Cretien kind of really plays up Percival as this kind of, like, maybe adult dumb hick from the sticks. And he says stuff like, Alright. My mama told me, and he's very Forrest Gump. Alrighty then. This author isn't so much into that, because he wants, because Percival's the finest knight in the world, and there's no comedic elements here. None at all, whatsoever. Upon this conclusion, the following conversation takes place between Arthur and Dagmar. Sure, I'll pass that along. So now that I've explained my whole deal, what's your name? Arthur. What? Arthur? Really? Yes. (laughs) That must suck to share a name with that shitty king, huh? I actually respect you less just hearing that you have the same name as that useless wreck. I, I hear he used to be pretty cool. Well, he sure as shit isn't anymore. 
Anyway, where are you headed? King Arthur's court? Aw oh, man, well fuck you then. And they part on bad terms. That seems reasonable, given the situation. Yeah, I, I, I like that she's immediately like, oh, you have the same name as someone I don't like. I respect you less for having that <laughs> name. <laughs> well, that, that goes back to, um, like, the reason Icelanders don't like naming their kids Sam is because it's like, it's like a Finnish name or something, and they don't like the Finns. Is that it? I thought it was because there was a, like, there were two saga characters who were named Sam, and, like, one of them was kind of a dork and one was a dog, and so they just stopped using that name. I like thought it was because dog. they were, like, they were foreigners who did bad things in the area, because it's, like, ethnically different name, and they're like, we don't like guys named Sam anymore. Just point blank. I actually don't know. I do not know. I'll take your I word to clarify that one. Yeah. As Arthur returns home, he hears a dread voice in the forest. And I, I can't help but picture the message from God in Monty Python's Holy Grail. <laughs> yes. But the dread voice says, Arthur, king of the Britons, you must hold court ASAP. It is how you will redeem yourself for being such a f**k-up. He is a f**k-up, man. He's a bad king. When he gets home, he tells Guinevere about his journey and puts particular emphasis on how God wants him to hold court. They're both thrilled about this, and that is the end of chapter one. All right. Impressive. Although I keep saying chapter, they're labeled as branches, and I think this is because he's imitating Welsh authors. Because the Mabinogian has branches instead of chapters. Anyway, so chapter two. Arthur sends out messages to all his knights and allies to attend court on the Feast of St. John. The story notes that he would have chosen Pentecost, as is traditional in Arthurian romances, but he didn't think that allowed everyone enough travel time, which I think is an interesting detail. I do like that. Does Okay, hang on. Does the text, like, let us know that this is already standard in medieval, like, no, Arthurian stuff? Okay, okay. But that makes sense. That makes sense. Travel time. I like it. Yeah. Details. Yeah. Pentecost tends to come up a lot in Arthurian romance. Feast of St. John, not so much. Okay, but the other question is, why didn't he just retcon it to make it work? Like, why didn't he just change the time? We didn't really have a specified exactly. time to begin yeah. with. Yeah, there was not a set time already. That's why That's why I wanted to mention that, because it seems like a very weird addition. All right, my dude. This gathering is to occur at, I'm not going to try and pronounce this properly, Pinavuasiusia. Uh, an unfamiliar word that, after doing some Googling and looking up some other people's attempts to interpret this, it seems to be an attempt to render into Old French the name Penzance, as in the Pirates of. Oh, that's a great musical, by the way. Highly recommend. Around 500 knights show up. The story notes that they are confused as to why Arthur chose St. John's Day rather than the traditional Pentecost. So I guess the summons didn't include the explanation about travel time. That's just special for us, the audience. Ooh, lucky us. But the story also specifies that Gowan and Lancelot are both absent. Good to know. Nevertheless, it's all super nice, and there is a direct quote explaining, like, the, the milieu. The sun streamed in through the windows, all around the hall, and the floor was strewn with rushes and flowers and wild mint, filling the hall with a fragrance of balm. Sounds nice. Does sound nice. In between the first and second courses, three damsels arrive. The book does not give them names. The one who does most of the talking is re- referred to in the narration as the Maiden of the Cart. So I'm going to use the obvious names for a trio in which one member is very talkative and one member is completely silent. Henceforth, these three will be called Groucha, Chica, and Harpa. Nice. Groucha 
rides on a snow-white mule, which itself wears a golden headpiece, an ivory saddle inlaid with precious stones, and a saddlecloth of red samite traced with gold. This text spends a lot of time on their description, so I'm going to share it anyway. I'm not quoting, I'm summarizing, but... Fair enough. Nice. I mean, that's that's also pretty standard for Arthurian tales et al. Yeah. Gracia herself has, quote, a most comely body, though her face was not so fair. Probably because she's got that grease paint mustache on. <laughs> of course. And wears a rich silken gown and fine headdress laden with precious stones. The narration informs us that she wears this on her head because she is bald underneath. Oh, come on, man. Her right arm is in a gold-embroidered sling. Both arms rest on, quote, the richest cushion ever seen, which has little golden bells stitched onto it. So she's sitting pretty. In her hand, she holds, quote, the head of a king. I don't know how you can tell. Because it's still got the crown I mean, on it, obviously. <laughs> it does still have the crown on it, yes. <laughs> Sealed with silver. I assume that means, like, the eyes and nose and mouth are, like, filled in with molten silver and you let it harden. Oh, dang. And crowned with gold. So, yes, it is still wearing a crown. That is impressive. Harpa, full disclosure, I have not read all of this text. I'm only, like, halfway through because it's, it's long and I have to write down all of it, so it takes me a while. But Harpa has not been given any lines yet. Okay. She rides like a squire, whatever that means. Tied to her mount behind her is a wooden box, and on top of that box is a hunting dog. Presumably one with excellent balance. Indeed. A shield is hung from Harpa's neck, which sounds uncomfortable, but a lot of the knights described also have shields hanging from their necks, so I assume that's just how you carry shields in this world. Interesting. I wonder if that's like, you know, like a shoulder, like shoulder sling, like how you have like a, a knapsack on your side. As opposed to, like, or maybe you're wearing it like a backpack or something, and it's like... See, these would make sense. Every time I hear hang from their neck, I just assume it's, like, on a necklace. Yeah, that's weird. Doing, like, the Flava Flav thing. <laughs> that would be a lot, man. I like the messenger bag thing better. But anyway, the device on the shield, which she has hanging, however she has hanging, is a red cross over bands of argent and azure. It also features a golden boss, which is the bit in the middle for the listener, if you don't know that. Chica goes on foot, driving the two mounts with a whip. She is, quote, about the height of a boy, unquote, which is not a useful measurement, but I'm going to guess it means she is petite. I would guess so. She wears a short skirt and is the most beautiful of the three. Oh. When making this judgment, the text actually apparently feels the need to establish a full beauty hierarchy, so we are also told that Harpa is hotter than Groucha. Interesting. So apparently this was an ascending hotness order. I guess so. Groucha approaches Arthur, and a conversation takes place. Sorry to ride my mule into your hall and ride up to your throne, but I have sworn not to dismount in the company of knights until the grail is conquered. That's rad as hell continue. See that shield Harper's got? That was the shield of Joseph of Arimathea. I want you to hang it from that pillar right there. Eventually, the knight who is destined to conquer the Grail will come take it down and replace it with his own shield, which has a white stag on a red field. Also, see that dog Harpa's got? That dog needs to live here, and it will greet nobody until the arrival of that knight. Free shield. Free dog. That's great. Yeah, put them wherever. I'm not done. I also bring the greetings of the best king in the world, the Fisher King, who has fallen into a deep lethargy. Oh, that's rough. Thoughts and prayers. Do you know why he is ill? No, uh, tell me. 
And this next bit is a direct quote from one of Grouch's many, many monologues, which I am not making you do all of. This weakness has beset him because of a knight whom he lodged at his castle, and to whom the grail appeared. Because the knight failed to ask who was served from it, all lands were engulfed in by war. Whenever a knight met another in a forest or a glade, they would do battle without any real cause. You can see this yourself. Your valor has been waning for a long time, for which you have been greatly reproached, along with all the other lords who have followed your example. For you are the model of good and bad for the world. And I have my own grievance, sire, against the knight, and I will show you why. At this, she whips off her headdress and shows everyone that she is bald. Oh, it's a plot point. Yes. Oh, I thought it was just a call-out. I was like, that's mean, man. No, I mean, it does kind of call her out as only being hot from the neck down, but I think the bald head is separate from that. That's fair. I mean, also, we should put the problematic patriarchy jingle in here for the fact that the book feels the need to establish hotness of all of these women. True. Obviously. I also feel like it should be acknowledged that a woman's hair was a point of pride for her in the, in the culture at this time. So this is a very real grievance that she would have had. Which does need to be explained to people, I think, because I think most of us have come around to like, that's actually a great look. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's hard for us to, to resonate with this, yes. but it was a big deal back then. Yes. Anyway, Groucho explains that as a result of the knight's failure to ask the question, she has also lost all her hair. Another side effect of not asking this question is alopecia. Uh, And it will not grow back until someone, quote, conquers the grail, unquote, whatever that means. That is for the knight to determine. Then, Groucho tells Arthur about the cart she has parked outside. It's pulled by three white stags in silk harnesses. All of the wood of the cart is ebony. The cart is draped in black samite, topped with a huge gold cross. Again, we're switching back to direct quotation. Zoe, take it away. And on the cart beneath the drape are the heads of 150 knights, some sealed in gold, some in silver, and others in lead. And the rich fisher king wants you to know that this calamity is all the fault of the knight who did not ask who was served from the grail. Sire, the maiden with the shield is holding in her hand the head of a queen, sealed in lead and crowned with copper, and by her were betrayed the king whose head I am carrying, and the knights whose heads are in the cart outside. My lord, send someone to see the richness and finery of the cart. Arthur sends Kay to check out the cart. Kay comes back with his report, and the following transpires. Yep. Cart's uh, super nice. Stags are excellent. If I were you, I'd take the one in the front and cook him up because he looks like he'd be a uh, great meat. Okay, what the f*** is wrong with you? Now listen, don't worry about it. We've got to go. Just hang up the shield and give the dog to the queen and her handmaidens to care for. Again, in the text is that Kay comes back and his main takeaway is... That stag looks delicious, and Arthur says, that's a dumb thing to say, and Groucho just kind of shrugs it off, and is like, look, we've got to go. That is incredible. I need this to be made into a show. Where are the showrunners at Netflix who would like this? Come on, you guys. Oh, my gosh. Also, I understand where the decapitation obsession critique is coming from now. That's a lot of heads. 
Yeah, someone has an actual cart full of heads. That's a lot of heads. Also, we did just have someone get healed with a head. This this is true. Oh dear. Yeah, no, there's a lot of heads. At this, the damsels leave, and the court watches them from the window. Another direct quote, And most said that the maiden who went on foot behind the two on horseback was the most beautiful. Obviously, this is the important takeaway, but also the most troubled. The bald maiden was in front, and she did not don her headdress again until she had entered the forest, so that the knights watching from the windows could no longer see her. Only then did she cover her head once more. When the maidens were lost to view, the king and the knights came down from the windows, and most said that they had never seen any bald maiden save her. That would make sense. Yes, great guys, I feel like you missed the point. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're leaving Arthur and his court behind now to follow the damsels, because they're about to meet up with someone who's much better than Arthur at carrying narrative. Oh, good! Seven leagues from the court, they encounter a knight. His horse is large, but malnourished. His hauberk is turned to rust. His shield is full of holes. The device on said shield is faded to invisibility. He does, however, have a very big and impressive lance. Ah. <laughs> the knight greets the damsels courteously. It does just say lance. I just, every time they talk about how big people's lances are, I just assume it's like a metaphor. <laughs> You know, it, at this point, in some of these texts, it's incredibly hard yeah. to determine. So take that as you will, and half the time it's probably intentionally hard to determine. But he greets the damsels courteously and asks from whence they have come. And here, we have another conversation. We've just come from Arthur's court at Penzance. Is that where you're headed? Now, I've been, but I'm glad Arthur's getting back into the swing of things. So where are you going? To the land of the Fisher King. Ha. Who are you? I'm Sir Gowan. Oh, wonderful. I've heard of you, and you should definitely go meet the Fisher King. While you're here, though, could you escort us until we pass a particular castle that I'm worried about? Oh, sure. Uh, escorting damsels is in my contract. They continue on together for a bit, and Groucho, like, catches him up on, like, a trip to Arthur's court. Also, I'm confused as to why he's holding a lance and not an axe. Is this before... His whole encounter with the Green Knight? Do we have a chronology here? You know, I don't know. Also, I'm not sure if anyone in France ever read the Green Knight. That's fair. I, you know, this is one of the things that I'm curious about, because I have not directly looked... I'm not an expert on Arthuriana, so I think it would be fascinating to see, like, a chronology of, like, okay, let's try and piece together when each of these took place in whatever fantasy land Camelot is set in right. versus when these things were actually written. I would love to see a comparison like that because trying to do that, I think, would be absolutely impossible, but I would admire the attempt. Just like you alluded to earlier, so much of Arthuria, all of Arthuriana is basically fan fiction. Yeah, completely. So there's no canon between them because there's, there's no original author. They don't have... It's like Gene Roddenberry's dead. Imagine if when he died... People also burned all of the canonical novels and all the movies and all the DVDs and just mm -hmm. lost it. And then their grandchildren tried to write fan fiction about Star Trek. And that's uh, that's the, the situation is that there was a canon somewhere, but no one has access to it anymore. So no, they're now just iterating wildly. It's like the beginning of Doctor Who, because that was the original recordings of that were actually lost. I think they burned or something. And so then they, they picked it back up. 
So we have some of it, but we lost a lot of it. Yeah. It's like if that had happened to all of it and then like a couple generations passed. Mm -hmm. So everyone's writing in the same universe, but there's no agreement as to what's canon and what isn't and you can't prove it. But anyway, Gowan has a question. Here we go. So why doesn't Chica back there ride on the cart instead of walking the whole way? It's a penance thing. Maybe you can help, though. How? If you see the grail at the home of the Fisher King, ask who is served from it. Then her penance will end, and my hair will grow back. Huh. Okay. Noted. So, like, it, it could be anybody? I... Yeah. Someone has to ask the question. Alrighty. And no one has done this? This feels like a very simple thing to do. You'd think. This poor woman! I think it has to be okay. a knight, but other than that, yeah. Ugh. And probably not was... someone who's part of the Fisher King's household, I assume. Because they all know. Right. But yeah, I, th I think it's just someone has to do it. Mm -hmm. After a time, they pass into a visibly evil forest. Visibly evil? Yes, I've capitalized all three of those words in my summary here. The imagery is pretty good, so I'm just going to quote the whole thing at length. It seemed that it had never been blessed with green. All the branches were bare of leaves and shriveled. The trees were black as though burnt by fire, and the ground looked black and charred, grassless and full of great crevices. Sir Gawain looked down a wide defile, and there before him was a black castle, enclosed by a great circular wall, which was ugly indeed and ghastly. And the nearer he came to the castle, the more hideous it seemed. He could see great halls loom up, and a foul aspect they were and the forest all around was as it had been behind. And he could see a river flowing down from the peak of an ugly black mountain and tumbling through the castle with such a terrible roar that it sounded like bolts of thunder. Sir Gawain saw the gateway, as ugly as the mouth of hell, and from within came a great shouting and weeping, with many people crying, God, what has become of the good knight? When will he come? Whoa. Visibly evil forest. Sounds right. Checks out. Visibly evil. Naturally, Gowan would like to know what the f*** this place is. Groucho helpfully informs him that it is the Castle of the Black Hermit, which is a bad name for a place, and a person. Say it again, you cut out. The Castle of the Black Hermit. That is really cool. And that he should not intervene in anything the residents may do as he and the damsels pass. Quote, For you could very well die, you would have no strength or power against them. They pass within two bow shots of the castle, and at that moment, 152 knights on black horses in black armor come out of the castle. We are also told that these knights are, quote, most hideous to behold, unquote. Each knight takes one of the heads from the cart and rides back into the castle. Okay. Yep. And since there are 152 of them, that does include the king and the queen head. Gowan, the text tells us, is ashamed not to have intervened to prevent the theft. Yeah, like, he, he doesn't see anything wrong about having a cart with 152 heads in it. He doesn't see anything strange about people wanting to steal 152 heads. But he is upset that stealing is wrong. I mean, I can respect that. Also, there is a lot of silver and gold inside of those heads, so... That is true. Gowan is upset about this. He says, it's a wicked place. They rob people thus. And Groucho is just like, look... You know how they were crying for the good knight until the good knight shows up? Nothing is about this is going to be fixed. If you can't do anything, it has to be him. Sounds good. They talk a little more about the good knight. Good knight is uh, capitalized. A book that I saw on Happy Trust, it is old enough that it's free on Happy Trust, 
looks like it was actually adapted from a doctoral dissertation by someone who was getting their uh, degree from Johns Hopkins about 100 years ago. Oh, wow. Has a rudimentary family tree of Percival's family. It includes all of Percival's, like, nicknames that he gets in this text. And one of them is a note that he's almost always referred to as Le Bon Chevalier, or the Good Knight. Oh, the Good Knight. TLDR, Good Knight is super dreamy, is what their conversation is. And then Gowan basically asks, so can I go now? We're past the castle. And Groucho says no. Not only is his escort mission not done, but he has to take a specific path once it is done. We don't know why. He doesn't ask why. He just does. Okay. And they're not there yet. A short while later, a knight jumps out from a postern. Random encounter. Indeed. (laughs) He is fully armed and mounted on a great horse, carrying a lance and a shield. The device on the shield is a golden eagle on a red field. This entire dialogue is direct quotes because the conversation with this guy is gold. Sir Knight, stop there, I pray you. What would you, sir? You must joust with me and win this shield. Otherwise, I will overcome you. It is a most splendid shield, and you should be at great pains indeed to win it. For it belonged to the greatest knight there ever was of his religion, the strongest and the wisest. And who was that? Judas Maccabeus, who trained birds to hunt others. And I have a note here that I should stop and ask if you know anything about this Judas Maccabeus who trained birds. I mean, Judas Mac- like Maccabees. Yes, sounds yes, this is, this is just the Romanized version of Judah Maccabee. Yeah. Did he train birds to hunt people? Nope. Not in the, not in okay. the Bible. Okay. That was my question. <laughs> so... I didn't think so. Okay, so you haven't heard this either. I was wondering if it was just me. No, but also, like, Maccabees is something that is in the Catholic Bible and not traditionally in the Protestant Bible, so it's not something I am as much familiar with. Ah, okay. Yes. Same with um, Judith, actually. Oh, that's a shame. She kills a guy with a tent peg, doesn't she? Yes. Or is that Yael? Yeah. No, Judith decapitates someone. Yael killed someone with a tent peg. But yeah, this is Judah Maccabee, the guy from the Hanukkah story. Oh my gosh. And apparently he is traditionally given credit for inventing falconry. Oh, okay. I did not know that. Yeah, he was one of the medieval nine worthies. So I guess he kind of just picked up some chivalric trappings by being near the other eight. All right. So this is the shield of Judah Maccabee, who was like a warrior. So it makes sense for him to have a shield, but he's been made into a knight, kind of retconally, and so now the the guy from the Hanukkah story is is a knight, and he's in this story. Or at least his shield is. That checks out. But Gowan is familiar. He says, truly, he was a good knight. So you might be glad indeed if you won this shield, for your own is the most pitiful and battered that I have ever seen on a knight. I can hardly tell what color it is. And you can plainly see that the knight and his shield have not been idle, and his horse is not as well rested as yours, sire. Damsel, there is no need for all this talking. He must fight with me to the death. I challenge him! I I heard you. Oh my gosh. Okay, well at least we have an explanation for why everybody's doing this fighting back and forth. And I do like her response to all of this. Yes. It's a very valid response. It is. But I feel like his response is very like, shut up, woman. Men are talking. <laughs> Basically, men are talking. Problematic patriarchy. 
And what they're talking about is like, we have to fight to the death for no reason. Ugh. See, this is the uh, problematic Toxic chivalry, chivalry again. Toxic chivalry is the phrase you use. Toxic chivalry. Yeah. Yeah. And Owen. Oh, Here we go again. Gowan responding, I heard you, is also a direct quote, by the way. Clearly, he's just kind of done. Wonderful. He's like, all right, here we go. All right. So they fight. Gowan unhorses the postern knight and patiently waits while his opponent recovers. The following conversation, this time not in direct quotes, takes place. Gowan, you idiot. Don't let him up. Wait, you're Gowan? Yes, he is. I wasn't talking to you. Yes, I am. In that case, I surrender. Here's the shield. Oh, thanks. And since you have a nice new shield, you won't mind if I take your old one. Makes sense. And before you read that line, you should know that Chico Marx does a bad Italian accent. Oh, Lord. Uh, uh okay. Um... Gawain, you idiot! He is going to take your shield as proof that he beat you. Then all the other knights will come out and drag you away into the dungeon. That was more Dracula, but I still liked it. <laughs> <laughs> my, yeah, I, Italian is not my, uh, not my greatest accent. <laughs> yeah. What a mess. <laughs> so Gawain says, What? Is this true? Foster Knight just kind of hangs his head going, Yeah, I was gonna do that. So for shame. And then the Foster Knight's demeanor changes. He's like, Thank you for delivering me from my hardship. So what now? I have been compelled to joust every knight who passes by this spot. But now that you have defeated me, I am free from that compulsion. Again, no explanation. He just is. It's like a curse. Alrighty. So apparently now they're friends, they're buddies. Uh, Gowan and the Postern Knights say their goodbyes. And Groucho offers to carry Gowan's old shield in her now empty cart, since he genuinely doesn't need to be schlepping it around. Like, it is just dead weight. After the Postern Knight leaves, they hear a lot of shouting from within the castle, and Groucho explains that the Postern Knight is being thrown in the dungeon for his disgraceful loss. <laughs> Alright, so someone's going to the dungeon. Yep. After traveling another league, they come to a path marked by a large cross, which Groucho points out as the path she wants Gowan to take now that the escort mission is over. Gowan heads towards the path, but Chica shouts after him. Gowan, you idiot! What now? You were supposed to ask Groucho why her arm is in a sling. Uh, why is it's your arm- It's too late now. You will only learn the answer from the most cowardly knight in the world, who is in my service- but cannot find me. I'm just gonna go. I I have so many questions. How did this actually go down in the text? Like, is does does this other woman actually? I don't think she actually says Gowan, you idiot. I just started putting that in because that's the vibe of a lot of things that people say to Gowan. True, but like that that she was supposed to or that he was supposed to ask seems very odd. Yeah. Oh, he was supposed to ask. It, here's how it goes. Sire, sire, you are not as alert as I thought. Is how is oh, what I translated as Gowan, you idiot. And uh, after Groucho gives that speech, he just kind of, instead of saying, I'm going to go, he says, I shall press you no further, and then walks away. Wow. Alrighty then. Yeah, I'm not taking a lot of liberties. I'm just summarizing and modernizing a little. But that's the end of chapter two. Alrighty. Alright, so Gowan reaches a hermit's residence. Outside, under a tree, is Dagmar, 
who still has that head hanging from her saddle bow, it is specified. Gowan greets her and establishes that she is here waiting to meet with the hermit who has information that she wants. The hermit arrives and begins helping Gowan and Dagmar get their horses all squared away. When the hermit tries unsaddling Gowan's horse, Gowan stops him, thinking the hermit doesn't know what he's doing. The hermit assures him that he knows his way around a horse, having spent 40 years as squire and knight under King Uther, although he left to become a hermit over 30 years ago. Gowan is confused by this, because the hermit does not look 70. He looks very young. That, that would be confusing. Gowan manages the horses anyway, and then the three of them head to the chapel. The hermit tells Gowan to go back for his weapons because, quote, this forest is full of adventures, and he shouldn't be caught unarmed. The three sit down to a meal, and Dagmar asks the hermit about the knight she's looking for. The following is the real no-fooling description she gives, which I would love to see handed to a sketch artist. Quote, Here we go. A chaste knight of the most holy lineage. He has a head of gold, the gaze of a lion, the navel of a virgin girl, a heart- What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know! <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I, I have never heard that in any other text or in any other context in my entire life. Right? The navel? The navel <gasps> of a virgin girl. Okay, because, because, like, you know, when you get into, like, Song of Solomon, they talk about, like, the lady's navel, and it's not actually referring to the navel, it's referring to something slightly lower. Yeah, that is but, like, definitely a euphemism. That that doesn't make any sense. It truly if does. If he's a... Okay. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe he just has a very, okay. like, slim waist? Like, I don't know what we're going for here. That's... That is a strange description. Okay, anyway, carry on. Uh, a heart full of valor and a mind quite free of baseness. Inexplicably, from this description, the hermit recognizes Percival. Like, yes, I have seen a girl naval knight wandering around. <laughs> I, I could tell personal. just by looking at him that his heart was full of valor and his mind was free of baseness. Of course. He doesn't know where Percival is now, but he has stayed at this hermitage twice uh, in the past year. Because hermitages are just inns for knights. Dagmar then asks Gowan if he's seen Percival. He has not. She asks if he's seen Groucha. He has. Dagmar confirms mm-hmm. with him that Groucha's arm is still in a slit. <laughs> How's she doing? There's a reason why this conversation is, isn't being done as a dialogue. It's it's very long, and that's all that it contains. Like, did you see her? Yes. Is her arm still in the sling? Yes. All right. At this point, the hermit thinks to ask who Gowan is, and he tells them. The hermit is pleased to hear that his visitor is THE Gowan, nephew of Arthur. Dagmar is furious, and we have another dialogue. <laughs> this girl just doesn't like knights, man. All right, here we go. You, sire, are descended from the worst king alive. Who? That f*** up Arthur. I just cussed out another knight a while back for even sharing his name. I I think he's starting to get his shit together. Also, I don't know of any knight that shares Arthur's name. Look, I know that you have to defend your uncle, but he is a loser. And of course the hermit has to put in his two cents, which is... I rather like Arthur, but that's just leftover goodwill from his father Uther knighting me. And now I serve in the household of the Fisher King anyway, where the sheer holiness keeps me young. The sheer holiness? Basically. Oh, wow. That's impressive. I like that. That should, uh, that should be a thing in a campaign. It should, yes. 
Uh, Gowan asks for directions to the household of the Fisher King, but apparently it doesn't work like that. If you're meant to be there, you'll just find it. As with all locales in Arthurian Tales. Yeah. The hermit does, however, tell Gowan that if he does end up in the court of the Fisher King, he has to remember to ask the question about the grail. Yes. In the morning, on his way out, Gowan runs into Dagmar. He observes that she seems unhappy, to which she responds with the following speech. Sire, I have no reason to be happy, for I am near to being disinherited because I cannot find the good knight. Now, I must go to the castle of the Black Hermit and take the head that hangs on my saddlebow, for otherwise I shall not be able to pass through the forest without being taken captive or dishonored. But this will buy me a safe passage. Then I shall seek out the Maiden of the Cart and travel through the forest in safety. I like that apparently it's just established now that that's how you get past the castle of the Black Hermit, is you have to give them a head. That seems like a very high price, but alrighty. I also like that Groucha is now called the Maiden of the Cart. Yeah, that's what the text calls her every time, but I decided she needed a name. Nice. That's still a good title. Actually, let me revise that. Bryant's translation calls her the Maiden of the Cart. I believe Evans' translation calls her the Damsel of the Car. That's less cool and more modern sounding, but alrighty. Anyway, Gowan has no follow-up to this. He's just like, uh-huh. And they hear mass because gotta, and they part ways. There we go. Yeah, you do gotta. You do gotta go to mass. Everybody wants to go to mass. They do. They really do. They treat the the home of the Fisher King, which is just described as like a holy place where there's always like prayer and mass, and they treat it like it's gotta be just the coolest fucking place to be. Man. Well, they got all those rituals, you know. I wonder what they're burning in the little right. Yeah, things. that's that was my thought. I'm like, <laughs> does this somehow get you high? Because you're acting like it does. For real, they treat it like it's a drug that they need to fix us. Go figure. Anyway, around midday, Gowan encounters a youth sitting beneath the tree. Some conversation establishes that he is also looking for Percival, but he intends to take revenge on him. This is the son of that red knight that Percival killed. Oh my gosh. Uh, it also seems that this kid is somewhat out of step with the times because he describes the shield Percival is carrying, but he describes the one that, is, that Harpa hung up in Arthur's court, which Percival is supposed to pick up later. So it's not clear where he's getting his information. Possibly from like some kind of prophet. Checks out. Gowan asks, does not engage with this any further. He just asks, like, oh, do you know where if I, there's somewhere I can find lodging for the night? But the kid knows of no such place, quote, within 20 leagues of here. So he advises Gowan to get a move on. Gowan does. And after traveling more than 20 leagues, we are told, finds himself <laughs> in a lovely meadow around dusk with a castle visible just a little ways away. He sees a youth on a pack horse not far off and asks about the castle. Said youth very helpfully gives him the rundown, which is as follows. This is the castle of the widowed lady, it is also known as Camelot. It used to belong to Big Alan, but he's dead, and now it belongs to his widow Iglesias. Ah, okay. We're pu- we're putting this together. I was wondering why Arthur wasn't at Camelot. Yeah. Yes, because okay, in, in this text, Camelot is Percival's family home. Iglesias is currently at war with the Lord of the Fens. The Lord of the Fens has already taken all the other fortifications held by this family. The defense of the castle is being run by Iglesias, her daughter, and, quote, five elderly knights, unquote. This is not ideal, and Iglesias would very much like her son to come back and help. 
the lad offers to ride ahead and have them lower the drawbridge for Gawain, because that is a normal thing to do in a castle that's under siege. Sure, of course. It's it's Gawain. You see, <laughs> you'd think that, but the next sentence I have here is, Gawain thanks the youth and says, Truly, my name shall be known before I leave the castle. He has not introduced himself. Go figure. All right. Sure. Yeah. And this is exactly the type of mysterious that should make anyone sensible change their minds about letting this guy into their besieged castle. Yes, agreed. That's sketchy. Yeah, because if someone's like, my name will be known before I leave, and your castle is currently under siege, I'd take that as a threat. I absolutely would. That's terrifying. But the youth rides off, and Gowan finds this chapel with a two-man in it that he wants to check out. Back at the castle, Iglesias would like to know why her messenger is back so soon instead of out doing the job she sent him on. The youth passes on what happened outside. Iglesias naturally assumes that the knight saying mysterious stuff about his identity is her son Percival returned. Iglesias and her daughter go out across the drawbridge and see an armored figure at the tomb. Oh no. Now you may recall, Percival was told when he was young that the tomb would open for the finest knight in the world. And everyone who has spoken of Percival seems to agree that since he has left home, he has become the finest knight in the world. So again, Iglesias makes the natural assumption that this is Percival, opening the tomb on his return, as would make perfect sense with Percival's narrative as we know it. So Iglesias and her daughter rush out to the tomb. Gowan, obviously, is just like, good morrow, ladies. But Iglesias walks right past him, checks the tomb, sees its clothes, and faints. This is a lot to take in for this poor woman. I know, right? She recovers quickly, but immediately starts, quote, crying out in grief, unquote. The daughter, who is not really given a name in the text, but I believe Percival's sister is named Dindrain, so I'm going to call her that. Okay. Explains the situation to Gowan. The text does not say that Gowan is embarrassed and sheepishly explains that he was just trying to be cool and mysterious, but I do think that's implied. Makes sense. Regardless, though, he introduces himself properly, and Iglesias welcomes him inside. Once Gowan has been seated in the hall beside Iglesias, she asks for news of her son. Once it has been established that he knows nothing, she explains her situation. Direct quote. His bravery now would serve me well, for he left me embroiled in war when he departed. Because he had killed the Knight of the Red Shield, he left a week later. That was a good seven years ago, but I have never seen him since. And now the brother of the knight he slew and the Lord of the Finns are waging war upon me and trying to seize my castle. She further mentions that none of the rest of her family are liable to, to come to her aid. She has three brothers, all of whom are kings, but one is the Fisher King, who, as we have established, has his own problems. Right. Another is King Pellis of the... Bryant leaves it untranslated as Basse Gent, B-A-S-S-E-G-E-N-T. Evans translates it as Lower Folk. And I've seen a couple other articles on Perlis Vals that translate this as King of the Short Folk. Ooh, okay. And at least one person suggesting that this is the King of the Dwarves. Oh, that's an interesting take. Yeah, but anyway, he can't help because he left his throne behind to become a hermit. Okay. The third brother is the King of Castle Mortal, which is also a good name, Castle Mortal. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like Mount Doom, you know, like it's a little bit too straightforward, but you're like, all right, okay, what's the twist? Well, obviously you've already picked up on the problem is that he's evil. Checks out. And he's envious of the Fisher King's land and holy relics, so he can't be trusted to actually help. All right. Uh, She also talks a little bit more about the Fisher King, but it comes out that none of them are aware that the knight who failed to ask the question of the Fisher King is her missing son. They have not gotten that information. Iglesias tells Gawain that if he reaches the court of the Fisher King, he should, one, 
Remember to ask about the Grail. Two, let the Fisher King know that Iglesias needs help. Okay, okay, so we've heard we've heard this list before, basically. Yeah. At this point, the, the five elderly knights return. They've been hunting, they've caught dinner. And the young messenger comes back, because he's actually done his job this time, and he has news. Uh, it seems that the Lord of the Finns and his allies have declared a tournament. And the prize is unusual. To quote again, He who wins the prize at the tournament will take over the guard of this castle and hold it against all comers for a year. So basically, whoever wins gets this castle, which Iglesias is currently living in, and then plays King of the Hill with it. That seems incredibly dangerous. This is, uh toxic chivalry. Exactly. It fits with the whole toxic chivalry thing. It's like, yeah, this is what you do. Uh, Iglesias uh. is upset because, again, this is her castle, and she's not consented to it being given to someone else. Yeah, no kidding. The next morning, after Mass, it is specified... Gowan goes to the five elderly knights and goes like, okay, are you going to this tournament where this castle is a prize? They're like, oh, we'll go if you go. And Gowan says, of course he's going. So they all head out. Yeah. When they arrive, we see that this is not the organized joust that the modern reader might expect. But this is the kind of tournament that's basically a free-for-all. Um, so it's a war. We call those wars. They do specify the difference. Okay. You're not supposed to kill people, and you don't get to ransom them the same way as if they were in a war. Like, they're not actually your prisoners. They're your pretend prisoners. It's just a mock battle, basically. Okay, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. It's but it's still, basically that's... also what the All tournament right. at Tottenham was, you may recall. Ah, yes, that's right. Okay, okay. It is something that comes up in Arthurian texts once in a while. It's It does not sound any less crazy to the modern ear at any point. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, we finally get a name for the Brother of the Red Knight. Bryant calls him... Cahot the Red, C-A-H-O-T. Evans makes a good decision this time and calls him Chaos the Red, which is badass. Nice! Anyway, there is a action scene, which I have cut for time. That makes sense. Also because it's boring, it's just people hitting each other. Naturally, Gowan wins is the point. There we go. And in addition, the five elderly knights are so caught up in the action that they perform better than they ever had before. After the tournament is over, everyone gets together to agree on who won. That's how you have to do this, I guess, because there aren't, like, clear rules. It's just like, all right, now now that everyone's beat the crap out of each other for an afternoon, who did the best? <laughs> this, is, this is just a little bit too close to, like, LARPing. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, okay, now who won? Like, who actually won, you guys? Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. It's a LARP, yeah. Like, yeah, it's a LARP. Like, go for it, my dudes, but you're LARPing. I gotta remember that for every other time one of these things comes up. <laughs> and everyone agrees Gowan won, but he never introduced himself, so they just describe him by his shield, and they say, okay, okay, uh, guy, the castle is yours for a year. And Gowan hands off the castle, because uh, it's his prize, he can do what he wants, to the five elderly knights. He says, great, this castle is y'all's now, because they're already defending it, so they can just keep doing it. And then he turns to the Lord of the Fens and says... Since he has defeated him personally in the course of the tournament, which he did, he was also handing him off to Iglesias as a prisoner. The Lord of the Fens informs him that this is not how that works. Direct quote. Oh, yeah. Okay. That is not yours to do, sire. A tournament is not warfare, and I will not be taking back the castle. And then he adds, which gives us some context on what the benefit of taking someone prisoner in a tournament is, I am quite able to pay my ransom. Oh, wow. Alrighty. And this is, again, something we see in, in these kind of tournaments. If you take someone prisoner, they pay you afterwards. Yes. 
The Lord of the Fins would, however, like to know who this rando is who just wandered in and won the tournament, and when he finds out the knight is THE Sir Gawain, he's just so chuffed that he promises he will lay off of Iglace and her castle for a year and a day. There you go. Gawain and his new buddies head back to Iglace with the good news, and with any luck, they're like, okay, this, this might be enough of a respite to give us time to find Percival, but tonight we party. And they do, and that's the end of the chapter. There we go. So she's still not really in a better situation whatsoever, is she? Like, she gets a reprieve, but... Everyone's presumably still, like, there. They have a truce for one year. Oh my gosh, you guys. So, for reasons of time and so we can fit in more chapters per episode, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think we should only do our segments, like, every ninth chapter. Yeah, I think so. Because that way we can do, we can split it into four because there are 35 of them. Oh, that's perfect then. Ooh, it is a big text, isn't it? Yeah. Chunky. Uh, this is the Evans. Ooh. But he also prints it in really big text. Okay, fair. Still, that's like a whole thumb's worth of material. Yeah, it is a large book. This little right. notebook I have is just the first six chapters. Oh my gosh. Is it one of the failed notes? No, this is a, a cheap notebook. I got a bunch of these uh, a few years ago because I was having my students do journals and they would always buy these like massive composition notebooks and then I'd have to lug a pile of composition notebooks around every time I wanted to grade them. Oh, fair. Yeah. I, I bought a bunch of cheap like lightweight ones and then I decided to just do it digitally. So now I have 20 of these. And so I decided to use them for this. Nice. That's a good use of them. Thank you. All right. But yeah, so since we've gotten through our, our chapters for the day, do you have anything you'd like to address from all that nonsense? Oh my gosh. I mean, I feel like despite the fact that it is a large pile of nonsense, it is no stranger than the Gawain story. Like there is also decapitated heads. Like the only difference is that the Gawain story is shorter than this. And it has more of a unified theme. I mean, true, but it's also, like, we covered that in one episode. I mean, we skimmed a lot. That's, okay, yeah, that's true, that's true. Yeah, I just, I understand the heads thing, and if that theme continues, then I'm going to be more concerned. But I don't, I feel like that's not necessarily the fault of whoever was writing this. It was where they got it, unless they're the one adding all the heads in. I mean, I'm pretty sure that this business with the Black Hermit is entirely their work. You know, the guy who wants Maybe heads. it just seemed really, I guess maybe it just seemed really dramatic. But I feel like, I mean, I feel like it would be great for a D&D campaign, but we'll save that. Yes. I'll collect a little list. Yeah, I also have a list. I have some preliminary, like, stats for two different monsters from these three chapters. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. This one just feels like the nonsense is coming on stronger and faster than normal. Yes, I do like the recurring Dagmar. Yeah, she keeps coming and going, and it's not really clear what her deal is. And she doesn't even get a name. She just really hates the knights. Yeah. I like her. She's always just called, like, the maiden, and then, like, given some kind of description, go like, it's the same one. Interesting that they specify that. Alrighty. I would love to see this as either a game or a TV show. Like, you don't even, you don't need to change anything. Like, always they take medieval stuff and then they change it all up. But if you're going to do a comedy thing, you really don't need to change that much. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think a, a direct adaptation, like, even with a narrator. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. Like, just straight across. And it could be hilarious if it's played up in the right way. 
Especially because it's so long. How many seasons do you think you could manage if if it's like a 20 minute episode every time? Oh, man. I mean, you can get at least an episode out of each chapter, I think. Oh, for sure. If you're doing full like 20 season things and you split a couple episodes, you've got two seasons. And you could stretch it out more because it's oh like, for I'm sure that's pretty solid, man. Need I think it needs to happen. And as will become clear in the next chapter, I actually have one casting suggestion for this show. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so excited. It is mandatory that is brought on board. Ooh, all right. And I'm saying that now because you should uh, find out how his voice sounds. So you can do an impression of him for next time oh, we do this. Oh my text. gosh. <laughs> Okay, I'll try. I'll try. We'll see. Oh, man. Okay, well, we do have a brief correspondence section. Hawk, a messenger. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, from Patrick. Do you want to cover this since you saw it first? Because we talked about whatever weird fish liquor is in the first part of our Leoprand episodes. Yeah, I don't remember if we mentioned that it was probably Garum, but it's probably Garum. Yes, we did mention it. I do know that. Because that was the first thing I thought of was like, okay, well, it's not a liquor, but it's a weird, you know, fish sauce and it's garum. So there we go. Our listener, Patrick, who is the same person who pointed out there were no toothworms, which is why I still want to pay some uh, biologists to invent toothworms. Yes. Also let us know that a YouTuber called Max Miller made garum from a Byzantine recipe in a show called Tasting History. And he gave us a link, which I'm sure we can put in the blog. Yes, I'll attach that to the Leoprian blog. He seemed weirdly comfortable with something that is, again, fermented fish sauce. Like, I had difficulty watching that video, but... I want to try it, but I also really am nervous about it. I know. I think you should try it. See, here's the thing. We now have this, like, old English leech book chicken marinade that I think mm-hmm. would work really well. It's like a dipping sauce. And we have this garum thing. So at some point, I feel like we need to do a special kitchen table episode where we try these and see how it works. I mean... Or at least I try them. Because, like, those both have meat in them, so I can't eat them. <laughs> That's true. Okay, I will. I will try them and we'll see how they go. But we'll put that on the roster to do. Yeah. And it will be a trial by fish sauce. We should definitely do that. That's That's got to be on the list. So thank you, Patrick, for sending that to us and thereby getting me to do a cooking project. Patrick does also note that this YouTuber, and it's probably a wise choice, opted to make the cheap non-fermented version of the recipe. <laughs> to quote Patrick, due to the difficulty of keeping a jar that smells like a rotting corpse in an apartment. Yeah, I might have to opt for that one myself, but we'll see. Or are you actually considering doing the full fermentation thing? I mean, I've done a little bit of fermenting before, you know, like kombucha and fermented honey. So I've, you know, I've made, I've made pickles. So we'll see. I can always put it outside on my balcony, you know, and leave it there. <laughs> Make the downstairs neighbors furious. Alrighty. So shall we finish up there for now? Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, 
the Maniculum podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter at Maniculum and on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. You okay? Did yep, it all stay good. in your mouth there? Not, it did. Not a spit take. We're good. <laughs> well, it's close.